Hey, I'm Bob Runkle, and for as long as I can remember, I've loved pop culture. Despite the challenges I've faced in my life, pop culture has always been there for me. I love talking to people and being a platform for others to share their thoughts stories. Because if there's one thing I never get tired of, it's being driven, talented, and inspiring individuals follow their dreams, no matter what obstacles are in their way. And I know a thing or two about that. Welcome to the DJ Bob Show. I'm DJ Bob. Roll it. From Letterman, all of the other reindeer, and beyond, Steve Young has been making people laugh in various ways over the years. I have a very insightful and informative chat with Steve about his career in television, writing one of my favorite holiday specials, diversity and inclusion, and so much more. Huge shout out to Craig Thomas for hooking us up and connecting us. This is a great conversation. Enjoy. So for those that don't know who you are, would you mind introducing yourself and kind of give a little bit of an elevator pitch of who you are and what you've done over the years? All right. Well, it's going to be a long elevator ride because I'm old now and I've uh, got a lot of chapters. But uh, my name is Steve Young. Uh, spent 25 years as a comedy writer for David Letterman. That's uh, the biggest chunk of the so-called career, at least time-wise. I've also written for The Simpsons a little bit, a few other TV shows. But uh, nowadays, if I'm known to the general public, it may be through a documentary that came out a few years ago called Bathtubs Over Broadway which uh, I am not the filmmaker, but I am the subject of the film. It's about my discovery and pursuit of a very strange subculture of the entertainment business that very few people have ever heard about because it was not supposed to be for the public. Industrial musicals, which are Broadway-type musical shows created for company conventions and sales meetings. So the audiences were all B.F. Goodrich tire dealers or McDonald's franchise operators or kids sneaker salesmen and these musicals were all about the trials and tribulations and triumphs of working for the company and how great the new products are and how wonderful a year you're going to have so you and i as members of the general public were not supposed to ever hear these but in my work for david letterman uh gathering strange records to make fun of on the show i began finding souvenir records of these events and became fascinated by them and fast forward 20 something years and i am now the guy on this very very narrow sliver of a topic and it has uh turned into quite a thing in my life and made a lot of people amused but also inspired so what is it like being the subject of a documentary that must be kind of a cool daunting kind of it could probably a mix of things I had started coming out from the background 
at the Letterman show, I was starting to do more little on-camera bits. And I was starting to do my own show where I would screen examples of these bizarre corporate musicals that I had now on film. So I was becoming a little more comfortable being a public speaker and a someone who was talking to the public. So I was sort of prepared for it. But the other great part of this was the filmmaker is a, a woman I met when she was an editor at The Letterman Show, Deva Huizenant, and I was so confident in her abilities and in her sensibility that I could relax and not worry that the film was going to go off the rails or portray me badly or be something to regret. I just thought this is going to be great. And so I could relax on that front. And I was exactly correct. It was great. She was terrific and made a beautiful movie that's won all sorts of awards and prizes and film festival accolades. And it is a, a towering achievement that will endure. And I was just having fun along the way. There was times when it was long days and hard work. And I did write some original songs for it. And that was tricky at times because they had to be very specific in what they were saying and achieve a certain tone. But mostly it was just a pleasure. I loved it because it was so, it's so niche that mm -hmm. people generally won't care about it, except for people like us and many other people. Unless they're really looking for something like that. So you're shining a light on something and it hopefully makes people dig a little deeper. And what Deva did with her movie, which was extraordinary, was take this topic that you think is just going to be this shallow, superficial, kitschy topic that you're going to grow tired of in 15 minutes. And she saw that what I was doing reached out to some very universal themes. I was trying to find the writers and actors who had done these shows decades before to ask them about what their work was, how it worked, what it meant to them. And you get into suddenly these very deep universal questions of how do you decide the value of what you've done with your life if very few people will ever hear about it or understand it? And what is art and can it, be art if it's been paid for by a corporation how do people connect with each other in a world where we're just drowning in media and consumerism and how do we get past that to connect with people i i ended up making friends with people in their 70s 80s and 90s and feeling like they were my my mentors as as well as friends and when you see that happening in the movie you realize how far it's gone beyond my initial sort of, this is ridiculous and silly. I've got to find more of these records. It, it turns out to be much more than uh, people think they're getting when they sit down to watch it. I loved it. And I, I originally reached out to you when the film came out, but we never crossed paths. And I'm glad we're yeah, I'm sorry it. about that. I don't know if, if it was on Twitter. I'm very uh, erratic on Twitter. I may uh, have missed things. Uh, Twitter, it turns out, uh, seems to be a cesspool, and uh, I don't spend much time on it now. But, uh, yeah, the social media in general, I'm very uh, hit or miss with. So it's an interesting time that you and I are talking. I mean, the writer strike and the, the Screen Actors Guild strike and stuff like that. 
and possibly some Broadway union and possibly the UPS drivers. And yeah, a lot of a lot of big struggles are playing out right now. But what is the hardest part for you about about being a creative person? For me, the hardest part now is thinking, what do I actually want to say? What engages me every day when I wake up, whether or not I'm going to make money from it? It used to be very easy in the, the old days with the Letterman world. I woke up every day and had to go to the office and had to turn on the machine in my mind and produce material. There was no looking for motivation. The motivation was this was my job. And now I don't tend to have jobs like that very often. Sometimes I have a short-term gig and here's the assignment and I do it and I'm happy to do it. And I like having assignments and deadlines. And the Letterman show was all about assignments and deadlines. Now I can be working on a novel or a script or a song and the wider world doesn't care whether I ever finish it or not. I have to care enough to really keep going and push past that inertia. That can be hard. I I think the hardest part for me, and maybe it's because of the disability and security is basically just kind of like having to deal with the worst that someone can say is no. But in my head, I'm always like, well, what if they don't like what I'm trying to... It's like, who cares? That is something that I'm still working with. Yeah, and that comes with age and experience. But you never probably get over it entirely. Like if I write something and show it to someone whose opinion I value, I have that little tremor of, oh, my God, what if... What if they kind of go, eh, I don't know about this one. This isn't very good, or this isn't your best work, or uh, like you have to be prepared for that little earthquake every time because it's not always going to be your best work. They're not always going to love what you do. Maybe your friends are going to be nice about it, but I do belong to a, a songwriting group that meets every couple of weeks on Zoom. These people I've become friendly with, but they are not essentially coming to this as my friends. And they'll give you an honest opinion. Yeah, this song, I see something good about it, but it, it needs a lot of reworking because it's unclear or this part doesn't work. Or So you just have to get used to that. And the Letterman show, again, for, for, it, for all the ways it was great and it was also difficult, at least it got me used to a rejection rate. It's always difficult for me in the podcasting realm because I will try to book an interview and then I'll go on YouTube or I'll go on another podcast site and I'll see them interviewing the person that I got a decline from. And I'm like, well, what did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, like, but I think that comes with me being, having a disability and being told that you can't do this because of your limitations. Mm -hmm. But obviously you're disproving that and you have been for a long time. Yeah. But it's still, it's still lingering in there. And uh, this is turning into a therapy session. (laughs) Do I care? No. Um, uh, But that is something that I 
kind of been working towards. I don't struggle with it, but I, it, it comes back in my head every, every once in a while. Yeah, sure. That's healthy self knowledge to know what, uh, what thought habits are out there circling that you need to be vigilant about. So one of the things I wanted to bring up, and we'll, we'll talk about the bulk. We'll talk about Letterman in a minute. But one of the things that I kind of wanted to dig deep on because no one's spoken with you about it is Olive the Other Reindeer. Oh, yes. That's, that's a fun project. Can you kind of tell me the genesis of that? Obviously, it's based on a book, but what was yeah. it like for you turning the book to a screenplay or a script? This was uh, an animated Christmas special, came out on Fox in 1999, and it was produced by Matt Groening, who is the creator of The Simpsons, co-creator of Futurama. So by the late 90s, he was extremely well known and established and had this great relationship with Fox. And uh, he didn't do too many outside projects from what I hear, but he did uh, option this children's book called Olive, the Other Reindeer, uh, about a little dog who named Olive, who mishears something and thinks that uh, all of the other reindeer is something about her and that she must be a reindeer. So the book existed, but they were going to turn it into an animated Christmas special. I think they had started with some other writer, not entirely sure, but it didn't work out. It was time was drawing short. They said, oh, this guy, Steve Young, just wrote the Simpsons episode like uh, a year or two ago. Maybe he'd be available. So that was how I got on on the project. And it was very fun. I was working with Matt Groening, but uh, also his producer, Claudia Della Roca, who's terrific and who I'm still in touch with. And we together sort of developed the story out of what was really a very slender children's book without very much in it. And I invented new characters and whole new plots and subplots. And it had to go pretty fast because this was like February, March, and this thing had to be animated in time for the holiday season. So the great thing about it was nobody had time to overthink things. We had just the right amount of time to do a few drafts and rewrites and upgrades. And I wrote song lyrics and they got uh, some terrific people to do the voices. Drew Barrymore, Ed Asner, Michael Stipe, uh, Joe Pantoliano. So it was a very happy experience for me because smart people were guiding it all the way. But people who liked my sense of humor, and I really was the right person for it, and it it did win an Annie Award, uh, which is an animation award, and I think it was nominated for an Emmy also, and I guess it still plays every year. And, and It is something that I watch every year, without and, a doubt. Oh, good. Well, it is, it's very sweet. It's like The Simpsons in some ways, like little kids can appreciate it. But it's also full of the jokes that Yeah, there's a ton up. of stuff in that. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of one kind of one kind of thing in particular. The the invention of Richard Stang. Oh yeah. 
Was that you? Was yeah, that- yeah, I think that was me. <laughs> That's another, great. Another character who re- said, yeah, I, I'm sorry, Olive, about the confusion. Look, my name has been confusing and misheard lyrics and things like that. So that that was cool. Um, yeah, it has jokes in it that adults are going to go, wait, did they just say that? No, no seven-year-old is going to get that. That's kind of a wonderful thing about the better world of children's tv writing and movie writing is that you can make something that works for little kids but also like i would hear from people oh i sat down to watch the first five minutes with my five-year-old and then i ended up watching the whole thing so i love to hear things like that yeah and i always write it i always write it the target audience i was four when it aired uh uh-huh. and i was right at that age but I watched it then, but then I didn't rediscover till like well into like my teenage years. I found the DVD randomly and I became obsessed with it. And it could become, uh-huh. become this kind of holiday staple that unless you were either, you either saw it or you didn't. <laughs> and it's pretty special in my life. So I, wanted to talk to you about your contributions to it yeah i wish fox had promoted it more like they were on top of it for the first year and it got a lot of great reviews and then it kind of dropped off the radar i'm not quite sure why but it's it's still around and it does turn up on lists of holiday classics once in a while is there a joke from that or something that standards and practices didn't really agree with the yet to fight for because there's a lot of stuff in there that i don't recall anything that would be like objectionable in terms of standards and practices where i did find that i was pushing the envelope was on weird uh references uh at one point olive the little dog is in a crisis I think she's been captured by the eagle, evil postman and trapped in the back of his truck. And she doesn't know how to get out. And she's looking at what's in the back of the mailman's truck. And there's a package addressed to her, to Olive. And it's from Deus Ex Machina, which is a very sort of nerdy, oh, you're a lit major. Oh, the sort of god from the machine where some sort of... uh miraculous left turn happens to save the day that's kind of what that means and i thought well obviously seven-year-olds are gonna not know what that is i don't know how many uh grown-ups who didn't like go to college i had to watch it a couple of times yeah but uh (laughs) when i was uh i was also working at the letterman show at the time and one day i got a call from the front desk uh steve Drew Barrymore is on your line. And I said, oh, okay, I'll take the call. And Drew Barrymore said, hi, Steve. Yeah, it's Drew. I'm I'm at the studio and recording these lines for all of it. And it's all so great. And great to meet you and all that. And she said, there's one phrase here that I don't think I really know how to pronounce. Is this Latin? And I said, oh, deus ex machina. Yes, that's deus ex machina. Okay, got it. So I had to coach Drew Barrymore through Deus Ex Machina, but uh, uh, she did a great job on the whole thing. She really was a a very uh, a sweet presence and really brought the character to life. I was 
I was glad that she cared to do a good job and give me a call and get that, get that nuance figured out. Yeah. I, like, I mean, I could wax poetic about how great that special, like I won't we were a short time, but it is so kind of, it's so self-aware of what it's doing. And mm. were, was there anything in that script? that you are proud of that you that you contributed that you yeah, could- there, there are lots of fun jokes there and also when i did the simpsons episode it was hurricane netty and that yeah. was a very collaborative process there was a whole team of wonderful writers all adding jokes there but on all of it was mostly me as a solo effort so so i look at that script uh fondly and and uh, yeah, there's some good jokes there. Like at some point, uh, the evil postman was trying to apprehend all of the little dog, and like, what? What are you doing? Why are you arresting me? Oh, uh, she, uh, uh, you're under arrest for not mailing uh, packages uh, early for the holidays and for licking the self adhesive stamps. I mean, just silly things that organically in that situation kind of made sense, but are silly. So it was a it was a pleasure to just turn my twisted little comedy mind loose on a a very sweet project like that. So you said as you were doing all of you're writing all of you're working on Letterman and that was basically your bread and butter for so many years. Yeah. Would you like to tell us about the first time you met Dave and when? what that was what that journey was like for you oh yeah so i came out of college knowing i wanted to be a comedy writer but i wasn't exactly sure how to do that i was very lucky i got an agent fairly early on because i wrote a cheers spec script that they thought well this kid's got some potential and my agent did get me my first job what was at not necessarily the news in Los Angeles, the fake news show that used to be on HBO. So now I'm out of year, I'm a couple of years out of college. I got my first uh, actual TV credit. There was something starting in New York called the Comedy Channel, which was the predecessor to Comedy Central. And now I had a few connections and people could recommend me, and I got hired there. And I started working in New York for the first time. So it was great to be in New York because you made some new friends and suddenly you were hearing in the grapevine about what was going on. And I heard, oh, now's a good time to put your writing submission in over at the Letterman show. They got several openings. A few writers just left. So this was early 1990. And by that time, I had some okay samples from either not necessarily the news or the comedy channel or uh, other kinds of writing. I thought, okay, I might have a shot at this. So I put in my writing sample. And one day I got a call from the head writer of the Letterman show, Steve O'Donnell. And I'd met him socially, but he didn't really know me, but he saw some potential in my writing sample and said, uh, we'd like to have you come up, uh, visit us at 30 rock and, uh, walk around the office. I'll introduce you to some people. Uh, and you'll you'll maybe chat with Dave Letterman for a few minutes. So I said, okay, I'll be right over. So Steve O'Donnell, still a wonderful uh, friend, some 33 years later, uh, wonderful uh, 
inspiring figure in my life and the lives of many other comedy writers. But yeah, I walked around the Letterman offices and it was all kind of low key. Hi, this is so-and-so. Oh, this is a writer we're thinking about. Oh, hi, how are you? And I was ushered in to meet Dave Letterman. And I wasn't too nervous. I thought, there's no particular reason this should go badly. I'll just have to try to not be a weirdo or a jerk and just hopefully not creep him out. But as I recall, he was very curious about the comedy channel. This is when basic cable was trying to get these new channels going. There was the comedy channel and there was a rival channel called Ha. And uh, eventually they did merge. But Dave Letterman was asking him, so what's going on with this comedy channel? What are they trying to do there? What's uh, what kind of programming does it have? I think he's just in general, always been very curious about kind of anything that crosses his path, but especially anything with, media and comedy he felt like oh i better understand the landscape here so as best as i could i told him what what was happening there and i guess i passed the smell test i didn't creep him out too much and a few days later i got the call from steve o'donnell well we're happy to invite you to join the writing staff and from there you how long did you work at letterman 25 years oh wow so you were there right into the end, and I yeah. I started when it, the show was still at NBC in the early nineties. Moved over to CBS and ran all the way down to May twentieth, twenty fifteen. That was the, that was the end. So I I have to ask you because maybe you can confirm or deny this. So there were several times because I interview a lot of people in the children's television landscape that kind of where i live in this kind of pop culture centric world and i've heard that dave hated or had a strong dislike of puppets and did not want them on the air huh uh first of all i can neither confirm nor deny no of course i'll i'll give you whatever answer i can recall uh I don't know that he was particularly either. Well, he didn't seem to try to be working. Because I know for a long time, Sesame Street wanted to do a top 10 list, and he was kind of like, you know, uh huh, iffy. But I do recall having a viewer mail letter that I wrote, which did make it on the air. It was back in the days when Dave smoked cigars. And it was some, maybe it was some viewer asking about Sesame Street. And the, and the answer I wrote was Dave saying, oh, I did go and do a guest star on Sesame Street, a uh, guest spot once. Uh, I don't think they aired it, though. It didn't turn out very well. And it was a pre-tape in which Dave is like uh, behind some counter and and Ernie is there and they're talking about, oh, and two plus two is four and five plus five is ten. And Dave carelessly with his cigar lights Ernie on fire and Ernie bursts into flames and is screaming. And Dave just goes, Oh, what a stench. I'm out of here. So you know, maybe, that's maybe, beautiful. Maybe he liked that because the, the puppet met a bad end. I don't know. I, I never heard him say that he was averse to puppets, but the one experience I have that memory uh, showed that perhaps, perhaps he, was not uh, not resistant to seeing something bad happen to the Sesame Street characters. So I have, you know, 
you know, obviously I wasn't staying up late every night school and things like that, but I did record a lot of the or watch a lot of the shows later on tape. So I've got I've had this archive for a long time. So what's really great about Letterman now is that there's this never-ending archive of video footage that people have curated over the years. What's it like to see your work and be like, oh, yeah, I forgot I did that? It's a strange sensation after all that time. So little of the material I wrote is really accessible in my mind easily. Once in a while, some uh, the YouTube channel puts out a new reminiscence with some writer or a producer, and I don't watch them all. I don't really feel drawn to heavy doses of going down memory lane, but I do watch some of them. And sometimes I, well, generally these are memories of fun, funny bits. And I go, oh, that was quite entertaining. And, oh, I remember working on that. And, uh, and sometimes the lines come back to me and I remember what somebody's going to say, even though it was something from 30 years ago. But there have been times, I remember at the show one time in the head writer's office, occasionally a new head writer would, uh, would ascend and there'd be a little shuffling of, of the logistics and I, somebody was leaving and there were piles of papers and I saw some submissions of jokes or ideas or something I'd written like three or four years before. And I picked up this page, had my name on it and was several years outdated now, but I started reading this page. It was just an average daily pitch of some fake books or I don't know what it was, but I thought, Oh, this is hilarious. Boy, these are great. Whoever wrote them. Well, that's me who wrote them. Well, I, that person, me certainly gets my sense of humor. So it could be possible to take yourself by surprise and write something that later you would be amazed that you had done it and it would seem new. Yeah, it's so funny because obviously we're going on our 13th year. We're on our 13th year of doing the show. That's a big kind of milestone in any endeavor. Um, yeah, congratulations. That's uh that's that's a serious achievement. And it's funny because you you know I'm I'm 28 now, and I started this when I was 15, so it was pre-puberty. So I listen to my own stuff, and I'm like, part of me like I wish I would have waited until things happened with me <laughs> puberty-wise, because the, you know then people would have might have taken me more seriously but at, on another note it's like you know what what teenager was putting himself out there especially with a disability and stuff like that so when you hear your own stuff or watch your own stuff it, it's embarrassing for some but some people love it and I feel like are you middle of the road when it comes to watching old or viewing old things? I guess so. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to spend my time too much in nostalgia world for, for the old show. And I do occasionally enjoy revisiting some clips, 
But I, I, as to your your point about looking back at your early efforts and feeling a complex feeling about them, I think that's true of of anybody. Uh, maybe not Mozart. Maybe he was just A plus from the age six or whatever. But but when I think about okay, when I was in my early twenties and trying to get a handle on comedy writing, and then I show up at the Letterman show and it's a miracle I'm there. But I'm very green. And I don't really have a good perspective on this is an idea worth pursuing or not. And you think, well, that's just the learning curve you have to go through. And 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 I, I hope I continue to be on a learning curve like that my whole life. Like right now, I do a lot of songwriting, which is something I wasn't really doing until a few years ago. And I'm probably very early on that curve. And in 10 years, I'll look back at the stuff I'm doing now and go, oh, God. But it's you got to you got to take that whole ride. You can't skip over the early part and just become a, a mature artist or stylist or craftsperson overnight. Yeah. You got to do the whole the whole time, and uh, at least you'll look back on your early efforts as they were indispensable in my journey of getting to where I am now. It's interesting as a creative person, what you thought was good then. You know what I'm saying? Like, what, like you see something and you pick apart so many things. But, but then I thought it was arable or deliverable. You know, I thought it was serviceable. But now it's like, why did I make this choice? Sometimes I felt like uh, very early on, I might have had good ideas but they were unpredictable. I might have 10 bad ideas and one good idea, and I might not be able to tell the difference. Now, maybe I'll have three good ideas and only two bad ideas, and I will be able to tell the difference. That would be good enough. But a friend of mine uh, who who you see in bathtubs over Broadway, Hank Beebe, who uh, lived to the age of 96, uh, he passed away uh, this winter. And I felt very lucky that I had had so many years to get to know him. But uh, he was full of great quotes. He was somebody who struggled his whole professional life to get respect and keep working and do what he wanted to do. But he had a great quote. He said, a professional is someone whose best work is outstanding and whose worst work is acceptable. So if you are in command of your craft, not everything you do will be genius, but at least it won't be terrible. It'll at least be okay. And sometimes it'll be genius. And something that might be okay might turn into something genius. Like it might, you might build on that idea. And that was the magic of the Letterman writer's room. And I'm sure the writer's rooms of a lot of TV shows and other creative places the Letterman show, we were generally people who had gotten comfortable with each other over a period of time, years and often, oftentimes. And I would come in and say, I have that beginning of something. And I'm just going to throw it out to you because I don't know where it goes or how it ends or what it means. And someone else's eyes would light up and say, aha, I know. And so you'd have this teamwork of passing the ball down the court and somebody's going to throw it up and get a, a basket. You're going to be part of the, the the effort that got you to the two points, but you may not 
be the last person whose hands were on the ball, but that was okay. We were all saying today, I'll help you on your idea tomorrow. You'll help me with mine. And, and we were very self-deprecating. People would say, I don't know if this is garbage or maybe it'll just inspire a better idea by someone else. And you would just learn to say, it's a safe place in here. I can, I can say a half-formed idea or a bad idea, and it might be just the thing that someone else needs to have a better idea. Yeah, and that collaborative effort w- does wonders. And you're like, I couldn't have done it without these people and it could become you everybody at Letterman seemed like a family and had each other back. There was a lot of that. And 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 you can take the analogy down the road of saying, well, you know, some families are dysfunctional. And there were times when it was difficult. But I would say on the whole, yeah, we showed up every day hoping that like the writers would say, Oh, I hope I'm got a great idea today but if i don't as long as lee or joe or jill or whoever has a great idea we'll all celebrate the success of that and even dave letterman you would show him something that you'd put together and he might have the better joke and then you'd go oh yeah let's fix that okay good idea and so you were prepared for his mind to be part of the process also one of the things that i wanted to ask you and i don't mean to like this is kind of a sensitive topic, but I kind of want your opinion on it. How do you feel about disability jokes within comedy? I've seen over the decades when I was working professionally, a few things changed. I don't recall disabled people ever being the topic of humor. I don't recall on our show, at least, that that was seen as a decent area for comedy. I think uh, there was a sort of holdover from an earlier era when there was a bit of homophobia and, and you could make a gay joke and, and probably body issue shaming. Like sometimes we would do fat jokes and maybe they were about celebrities like Chris Christie. And you felt like, well, he's a public figure. So there was, there was that, that sort of thing that I think now probably we would be more careful and thoughtful of. That's not to say any of that is is disability, but that that seemed to me like an area no one in my era thought was going to be an area for comedy. I feel I feel at least in my as I view media because I'm a pop culture kind of sure I watch things and listen to things and absorb it all. And the one thing that I notice is that whenever there's a disabled joke, it's always like, look at how disabled they are and blah, blah, blah. They do an impression of them. And it's like, that's such a cheap laugh. Yeah, but is it even a laugh anymore? I think people have been conditioned to think that's not a good area for jokes. That's, it's not funny and it's hurtful. Uh, I think... A lot of people, if not most people, have gotten past that as an area that it is a laughing area. Yeah. Well, if I, I could share, if I could share a quick story. All right. I I did, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I'd love to share it with you. I did an interview once with a 
a kind of renowned rock band. Uh, they were big in the 90s, and I did an interview with their lead singer, their front man. And I was younger, and I was really struggling to figure out my equipment, my gear. And I was like, can I call back in like 15 minutes? And then he was like, I don't have time for this retard. And then hangs up on me on the air. Mm, wow. Well, that is appalling. And as a, a, a member of uh, that person's species, I apologize on behalf of our, our mutual species uh, we see that there are people like this i mean we had a president of the united states not too long ago who thought it was funny to make fun of a, a disabled person i mean i don't i feel as though like what i'm trying to do is i'm not i'm not a disability podcast i'm a mm -hmm. pop culture podcast a conversationalist podcast hosted by a guy that just happens to be disabled. Right. Uh, and I think most people who who listen to your podcast, even if they're new to it after a couple of minutes, they're just, they, they're forgetting about this uh, particular detail and they're just, oh, what is what are we talking about today? It's very, it's very quick to just, uh, it, it never has to be the the theme of the podcast. So I, I I think you're doing you're doing great in saying this is a part of your life and it's inevitably affecting your outlook on things. But it's not your primary characteristic. I mean, there was a point in time on this podcast where I never used to talk about it. Uh huh. And then I realized, wait a second. This is creating a conversation that the guest wouldn't be privy to otherwise. Because mm -hmm. I don't think people wake up every day and think like, oh, disability. But if I could, like, if I could talk to you and the next time you're in a writer's room and the, the dis disability comes up, I'm not asking you to change the script, but at least if I could be a thought in your mind for at least one second from our conversation today, then I've really done what I've set out to do. Yeah, I think the little ripples in a pond from these conversations can only be to the good for just planting those seeds in people who may not have it in their lives every day, but it's a, a great reminder just of how many different kinds of situations your fellow man is in and your fellow woman and your fellow citizen and just just look over the horizon a little more i think that's very good so we've been having this conversation for a little bit now and i want to know i want to turn the tables do you have any questions for me anything about my work my career my life what do you want to know yeah well here's a question for you uh you've been following the pop culture landscape uh and seem quite uh knowledgeable about things in light of the current 
Writers Guild strike and SAG-AFTRA strike and maybe other strikes, do you see the business changing in a way that the average viewer and consumer of pop culture is starting to notice, or is this all behind the scenes so far? I think I think the average viewer is going to start to notice because they're going to see less of what they know. They're they're going to see less content. They may see they may see less shows on the other may. They may see more closings, more things like that. And I feel like the average viewer needs to be educated on a on sort of a not a deep level, but they kind of need to be aware. So if we can kind of let them know that hey, they see a problem and that actors are not rich just because they've stepped on a film set or the person that writes your favorite show isn't getting paid fairly, then they've hopefully learned something within the process. Yeah, I think we're doing pretty well on the PR front. There's still a lot of propaganda that people like to spout about. Oh, all these people who write TV shows and movies, they're all rich. What are they crying about, those babies? But the vast majority of writers that I know and have talked to, they're all saying, first of all, we're just trying to stay in the middle class at this point. There's a tiny sliver of people who do get very rich, but at this point, it's like trying to buy a mega millions ticket. It's probably not going to be your lucky ticket. So if you want to stay in the middle class as a writer or as an actor, you have to fight for these fair contracts otherwise we're all just going to be slipping down into this shorter and shorter gig work you won't be able to raise a family you'll never be able to afford to buy real estate and if we value the middle class as the great engine of who's going to buy all these cars and tvs and sneakers well we got to have people making enough money to buy things Absolutely. So what what piece of work that you've done would you say is your proudest? Is there a specific moment in your career, either a bit or a project, that you go back to just because you love what you contributed to it? Uh, there's one project I had. It was related to the Letterman Show, but it was never on the Letterman Show. I don't know if you've uh, if you've looked up my website, steveyoungworld.com. I have. It's very a, comprehensive. Oh yeah, well, thank you. I think uh, there's a, a bit called Celebrigum, which was me taking pictures every day from a, a window in the office building near Dave Letterman's dressing room, and on the outside window ledge was an old piece of hardened dirty gum that someone had left there but on the street below every day at a certain time in the afternoon limos and suvs would pull up and out would get julia roberts or george clooney or whoever is the big star on the show that day and i would take pictures out this window for i think i did it for three years and i started this website called celebragum.com and every picture has to have the same piece of old gum in it in the foreground and on the 
street below in the background is Tom Cruise or Barbara Walters or whatever, waving to the crowd and signing autographs. And it was sort of conceptual humor. And you can sort of read into it about, well, it's a commentary about aren't all celebrities just gum that we're chewing up as a society and spitting out when we're tired of them. But you can reach to that, but you don't need it. I just thought it's ridiculous and silly to keep doing this. And Dave Letterman loved it so much. He said, we need to do an art gallery show and have all your pictures in the art gallery. And that's what we did one year for the Late Show holiday party. And the New York Times sent a reporter and Dave Letterman amiably chatted with the New York Times reporter. And it was in the New York Times. And it was just, this is purely because of my whimsical sense of this is a stupid thing to do, but maybe it will achieve some sort of weird grandeur just by doing it again and again. And of course, it helps that it's got all the A-list celebrities involved. Earlier on in the conversation, we spoke about not caring what people think. And mm-hmm. it's exactly that. That's exactly what that is. You don't, you don't, if it makes you happy, if it makes you laugh, do it. Yeah. If it brings you joy, do yeah. it. I enjoyed the challenge of just, I'm going to just keep doing this. And I'm, some of the pictures were actually rather weirdly beautiful, like with the shadows and paparazzi lenses and orange traffic cones and wind, wind whipping through someone's hair or whatever. There were a bunch of pictures I really did like, but I was not trying to monetize it. I was not trying to impress people for some sort of career-minded move. And Dave Letterman loved it because of that. He could tell I was doing it because of the sheer stupid pleasure in it. And it was exactly the sort of sensibility that he loved. And it was very flattering that he got behind it. So when Letterman rapped, was there this feeling of this was great, but what do I do now? And how long did that last? Yeah. So the end of the show in 2015 Actually, he now announced that he was leaving a year before in the spring of 2014. And it was right around that time that the documentary Bathtubs Over Broadway was going into production. We were starting to shoot some uh, material for it. Dave Letterman, by the way, an executive producer on the documentary. I get to interview him in the movie. And it's very sweet. And great. It's such a good doc. Yeah. And can't recommend it enough. He loved it because. This whole phenomenon had grown out of the Dave's record collection comedy bit on the show that I just kept tugging on this little mysterious thread and then it turned into a phenomenon. So he was glad to see that, again, my natural uh, curiosity for curiosity's sake had led to something like this. But so I could see on the horizon that bathtubs over Broadway was was going to be a big part of my life, even with the Letterman show ending. And so uh, that was 2015 that the show ended and the movie premiered in 2018. And I spent about a year going around on the film festival circuit and I'm still doing things related to it. I have a live show where I show the film clips and talk about them. because I have this crazy archive of industrial musicals on film that you can't see anywhere else. You see little glimpses in the documentary. And I I do lectures and uh, I'm going to do a keynote address at an organization in the fall. And uh, so it's it's a little bit of an ongoing 
uh, I wouldn't know. I don't know if it's a job or a part-time job, but it's, it's a big part of my life. And so that was a good thing to have come along when Letterman was ending. I did work on a few other shows, Maya and Marty on NBC, Harry Connick Jr.'s daytime show for a little while. And I, I've done some teaching. I taught at NYU for a few years, uh, a TV history course. Sometimes I teach a comedy writing workshop. So I I miss the people and I miss the steady paycheck, but I did feel like the Letterman show ended about when it should have for me. Because you then it overstays its welcome and... Oh, got to re-record that after my phone ring. Perks of being in a home studio. Mm-hmm. Who do you think it is? Telemarketer. Um, Let me talk to him. That'll turn into a new bit. Yeah. Hello. Yes, this is DJ Bob. How can I help you? Yes, I will buy one. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. As I was saying, that's kind of good that you kind of uh, knew that it was ending because then it kind of like overstated you welcome otherwise. Yeah, Dave had a pretty good instinct for I mean, he loved a lot of bit parts of the show. And then he figured out how to do the parts he still wanted to do with his Netflix show. So I thought that was good self-awareness on his part. But he didn't really want to do top 10 lists until he was 90. So as we wrap up, when I have these conversations, they're just conversations. I don't have the mindset of impacting the person on the other end. However... I would like to know, what have you taken away from this conversation? What have you learned from our time together today? If anything, what have you kind of gotten from this? It doesn't have to be deep. It doesn't have to be philosophical. I'm just curious. Well, I've learned that you have boundless natural curiosity about the things you love in the world of TV and pop culture and writing, and you're happy that you get to ask people questions. And then there is the side that you talk about here and there with the disability, and you have learned how to acknowledge that, but not have it front and center all the time. So it doesn't have to be what your life is about. It is a fact of life. And and I think wise people learn to do that with whatever they're struggling with. Acknowledge it, but, but don't make it the theme of everything. I'm going to, I'm going to expand, I'm going to expand on that and say, do you have any questions in regards to my disability? Is there anything that you're curious about? Like my day today, I'm happy to answer. Because the more light I can shine, the more light I can give. Mm-hmm. So obviously you're a very polished interviewer and conversationalist. Are there parts of, uh, like, uh, do you wish there was other parts of your media empire that you could do more of that you feel constrained from? Like, are you able to travel and go places easily or is that difficult? Travel is really difficult. Mm-hmm. And I'm so thankful for the advent of Zoom. And that was one of the kind of, I hate to say this because people, went through hell and back during the pandemic and we're still in it. But one of the good advents that happened because of the pandemic was Zoom. And companies started doing press opportunities and press junkets over Zoom 
that I could attend rather than going to a hotel to do a movie, a movie junkie. So yeah. I got, I got to, I got to be a, I got to be, um, a valued member of the press that way. This is not a tiny show that I do. This is something that has grown and, you know, blossomed into something bigger than any, any of my family or friends or colleagues could have imagined. It's really cool. And I think the human, the human culture helped us a lot in that way. Yeah, Zoom, I'd never heard of it prior to the pandemic, but boy, did it certainly become a staple of life very quickly. And you're right, it has allowed teaching, uh, like some of the teaching uh, comedy writing workshops I've done were over Zoom, people who could not have traveled to wherever it was going to be. And there's a trade-off. It might be more fun to be in a room together, but but it sounds like for you, it was quite a, a blessing. Now, where are you located, Bob? I'm in Long Island. Okay. And I, because of the way, because of my disability, I haven't even been to New York City. I'm in kind of like the suburbs. Okay. And that's because of travel logistics and whatnot. That being said, I do plan to go to the city at some point within the next couple months or so to go for the first time to hang out, meet people and kind of explore. But it's, mm-hmm. but you know, um, when I tell people that, they're like, what, you haven't been to the city? And I have to explain to certain people just because you assume that one per, one person's life is the same, one size doesn't fit all. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is on your journey or my journey, respectively. So it might take a little longer, but like I'll get there and I'll do the things that I set out to do. And we can feel lucky, you, for your situation, but many other people, that we are in a period of history where being connected in meaningful ways is much more possible than it would have been even 20 or 30 years ago. Even when I was starting this podcast, people people thought it was, they didn't understand the how to, Use Skype because before Zoom, we were using Skype. And oh, yeah, I remember Skype. I was struggling with that for a while. Yeah, before that, we I had a I had a phone line connected to a Skype line, so I would get calls and the the And even before that, I I didn't have a microphone stand, so my microphone stand, my microphone stand was literally a tin cup holding the mic in place. So, uh-huh. so like you've had to, because I was, I was the kid that went to Radio Shack with his, and got a cassette recorder and did fake radio shows in the bedroom. You hear that? Oh all yeah, time. that's that's a classic origin story. You you already knew where you were headed at some level as a 
a kid, but I wanted to ask you about being a kid. Do you remember at what age it became apparent to you, oh, my life is going to be different than the lives of people I see around me? And you came to understand uh, what you were going to be dealing with with the disability. Were you like a, a little tiny kid or? That, that is so interesting you say that because I bring it up. I bring it up pretty regularly on the podcast, but it's never been directly asked. So I'll be happy to tell you. Um, when I was, I was diagnosed with cerebral palsy at the age of two. And then shortly after that, I was getting at home services like occupational therapy and physical therapy and, and things like that. And then at some point, I think when I was three, I went to a school just for kids with disabilities from when I was three to when I was six years old. So for the longest time, up until I was six years old, of course, I knew my siblings could walk and I saw. But when I realized that when I went to public school for the first time and I saw that not everybody was like me, I was like, oh, yeah, this is different. This so, is yeah, strange. You were, you were in a school where you didn't feel like you were unusual. And then you went to the, the school and suddenly you were unusual and you had to grapple with that. And what's even, what's even weirder, not weirder, but one of the kind of uh, crazy things about going into that public school was I'm in New York. I'm going to this public school for the first time. And it is, September 2001. Oh. And days into school starting, 9-11 happens. My school nurse's husband passes away in the towers. Wow. So, I had to kind of learn what it was like not grow up, but deal with intense things at a young age. I mean, yeah. I still had my childhood. I still had innocence, but it was different. Yeah, you were suddenly right up against the biggest, hardest issues that human beings deal with, even if you weren't being asked to deal with them yourself. You were aware of them now. I mean, and there's no, there's no, there's no worse direct hit than that. So I had to really kind of learn and kind of deal that like, oh, not everybody can understand. Thankfully, I wasn't bullied and I could explain to people but still going from an environment where you're understood because everybody's like you mm -hmm. to having to kind of start from scratch. And then after that school year ends, going to a whole other school and doing it again.
Oh, you had to start at a different school again? Yeah. So it's like a fresh slate every single time. Right. And thankfully that that school was, you know, I went from first grade to fifth grade there and then and then middle school and onward. And but like just knowing that I had to start that again was sort of like okay, back to the drawing board. Fatiguing to say we have to start over. Do you feel like you have a sort of built-in wariness after uh, years of school and adult uh, adolescence and everything where you're worried, are there going to be mindlessly cruel people that I have to deal with? Or do you feel like you have an extra? It's, it's not even, it's not even, it's not even cruel people. It's just like ignorant people mm-hmm. in the sense like, when I was doing, when I started this show, I was in high school and it's like, people would ask me, Oh, who set this up for you? Who did this for you? And it's like, they, they thought it was like a make a wish type thing. And I'm like, I, I did it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's mine. I did it. The other thing that I kind of pinpoint to that is like, just because you're in a wheelchair, it doesn't affect your intelligence. People often talk to us like we're five years old. Right. Because they see the wheelchair as a sign of intelligence. Mm, that is uh, puzzling. And yet I have to defer to your knowledge on this. I, I, I hope that I, uh, just by my nature, never thought, would have thought that. But it's weird to think that there are people who make that incorrect connection and it shouldn't have to be your job to educate ignorant people but unfortunately i guess that is part of your lot in life is to push back on the ignorance i mean not to mention um my my fiance we're long distance right now but she lives in california i'm in new york literally cross country but we made it work and the stuff that she has to deal with is like like, let's say she's at a restaurant and they'll go to her father and say, what will she be having? Mm-hmm. Like, she can talk. Right. She's like, not, she's not a, a zombie. You can talk to her like a person. Like, just, well, I, but I wonder what it is that throws people off. I mean, it's just an object. Yeah. Well, people are scared of differences they don't understand. And maybe people are trying to be nice in a sort of dimly uh, ignorant way. And and just they just have no frame of reference. And you are sadly, but also happily, as you go through life, you are changing a lot of people's perceptions. So on that note, I hope I've taught you a thing or two today. And I hope that we could keep in touch. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I appreciated all your questions about the things I've done, but I, I also appreciate the opportunity to ask you questions because uh, I feel like uh, hopefully I have some of Mr. Letterman's natural curiosity about what people know that I don't know. And you, you know, things I don't know. So where can people find you on 
the internet. Oh, yeah. Be- well, because as you know, I'm a social media demon. I'm on it all the time. No, I'm I, I'm on Instagram at Pants Steve and Twitter is Pants Steve also. And I don't really do anything much on Twitter these days, but uh, I have uh, steveyoungworld.com where you can find uh, little glimpses of all the different things I've been up to. And if and uh, if you want to look for the Bathtubs Over Broadway documentary, it's on Amazon and Apple TV these days. It, it's been on and off Netflix. I think right now it's not on Netflix. Hopefully it comes back. But, Is there a DVD release of it? I have no, to- tragically. And that's a whole other rant that I would have about the uncaring uh, slapdash haphazard way that the distributor treated this movie. They just thought it was too strange to ever fit any algorithm of how to market it. So they kind of didn't care. I'm so glad to have spoken to you. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been absolutely wonderful. And I hope to have you back on soon. Oh, I love that, uh, Bob. Or do you prefer DJ Bob? Because I can do either. Uh, however you feel that day. <laughs> All right. I'm going to say DJ Bob. It feels more like an honorific that you've earned in the same way you say doctor or professor or lieutenant. DJ Bob. Thank you for having me. It was a great pleasure to chat. Thanks for hanging out with us at the DJ Bob Show. If you like this episode, drop us a line at djbobrunkle at gmail.com. That's DJ Bob, R-U-N-K-E-L at gmail.com. Let us know what you liked most about this episode and what other guests we should have on the DJ Bob Show. Thanks so much again for hanging out with us. This is Nate Beagle, your humble announcer.